0: Don't move, I just got to get the door. Ted, Annette! Oh, I'm glad you could come. How you doing? Give me your coats. Everybody, this is Ted and Annette Fleming. How are you? Ted has a small carpet cleaning business and receivership. Annette's drawing a salary from a deferred bonus from two years ago. They got 15000 left on the house at 8%. So they're okay. So, does anybody want to play partezus? Okay, who brought the dog? Hey everybody, I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast number 36. This week I'll be discussing bringing texture to supporting characters. I have some thoughts on last weekend's box office and want to respond to an article that Script Shadow wrote about transcendence and the segment's client corner. What I'm watching and some very quick thoughts on the incredibly disappointing maddening How Did This Get Made episode featuring one of my favorite films, Color of Night, but I'll get to that later. So in terms of bringing texture to supporting characters, the thing we have to remember is that we don't have a lot of time with a supporting character. And it's incredibly important to make sure that you define them in very obvious ways. And the best way to do that is to have their occupation be a reflection, and have their occupation reflected in everything that they say. So as we heard in that opening clip from Ghostbusters, Lewis is an accountant. That's very clear. Even though we're meeting him in the hallway of Sigourney Weaver's building, he's an accountant. He has a really specific way of looking at the world. He's sort of an efficiency expert, and he also is trying to bang Sigourney Weaver, which is a third element of his character, that he really doesn't have any sort of sense of self or how others see him, and Rick Moranis uses that in order to mine a lot of comedy. There's something really funny about watching Rick Moranis trying to get with Sigourney Weaver, and her not having it but trying to be polite, and him not realizing that she's just trying to be polite but trying to get the hell away from him. And of course, we see her then slamming the door in his face, and him not really absorbing that. It just sort of rolls right off his shoulder, and he continues talking, and then he, we find him at the end of the scene. He walks back down to his apartment, and And the door is locked. He's locked himself out. And that will actually be recalled again later in the movie where he's having a party and he catches her in the hallway. The door closes behind him and then he ends up locked out and is banging on the door trying to get into his own party. Often you can use a character's occupation in order to define them. You can also do another thing. Often with kids, they don't have an occupation, but if they're a child-supporting character in a film if you watch, they'll usually have some sort of hobby. They'll usually have some very, very specific interest that is reflected and brought up in most of their scenes. And that's one way that you can get around a character who might not have an occupation. Um, Linda Seeger talks a little bit about undermining what we might think of a character and their occupation when it comes to a supporting character. So she says that you often want to find the opposite, Um, go to an extreme with the character's occupation, but then find sort of an opposite quality to it. I know I've talked about this before. I'll talk about it again, where she mentions the case of a gas station attendant. Well, if you have a character who's a gas station attendant, our first thoughts are that's a blue-collar job. It's a... Um, unskilled job. And we might not think that an incredibly intelligent person might have that occupation. So that's what a film, The Peaceful Warrior, does. It gives Nick Nolte this character where he's basically Mr. Miyagi, but working in a gas station. And not only is he working in a gas station, he's working in a gas station at night. So he's like a minimum wage paid guy working the overnight shift, which, you know, if there's anything more difficult than a minimum wage job, which can be, you know, they're, they're often very unpleasant, working the night shift can really mess with somebody's head. And here we have that with this character, but he's the smartest character in the movie. He's the guide, he's the teacher, he's the coach, but he comes in a form that we wouldn't initially expect. And in fact, in that specific film, the hero kind of talks down to him when he first meets him. The other thing to remember is that everything that a supporting character does is somehow a reflection of the lead. Tonight, I was watching the 1999 film The Thomas Crown Affair. It's streaming on Netflix. If you haven't seen this film, watch it. It's the kind of film that, if it was made today, would probably get a Best Picture nomination. And in fact, at the time, they did make an effort to get it a Best Picture nomination. It didn't happen because that was a time where studios were actually actively participating with prestige projects. But the interesting thing is that Dennis Leary plays a cop who's a supporting character working with Rene Russo to recover this painting that they know Pierce Brosnan stole. And right after Rene Russo finds out that her love interest slash suspect has another love interest. She sees some pictures of him with a young hot blonde. She gets really upset and she leaves the office and Dennis Leary tracks her down at a diner and she's clearly very distraught and pissed off. And he tells her a story. And in this story, we get a little bit of his backstory, but the thing is that it's all a reflection of Rene Russo's character because he talks about the time that he had An incredible heartbreak. And he talks about how his girlfriend went out one night and didn't come home. And then she showed up the next morning. She got married to somebody else. And he went off the handle. He ended up banging five girls in three days. He crashed his car. He beat up a suspect and got suspended. And then he got over it. And that was his lesson to her. You'll get over this. You'll get through this heartbreak. But again, we don't get anything else about this character. He's a cop, and he is there to interact with Rene Russo, and there to question her and to say, hey, do you really know what you're doing? And hey, are you kind of being a whore because you're sleeping with this suspect? Um, by the way, just to be clear, she wor- she is not a cop. She works for the insurance company. Uh, that is responsible for a stolen painting, and if she can track it down, she gets $5 million. And that's her reason for working with the cops. But in this case, Dennis Leary does not have his own character, per se, Um, his character does not have anything else going on outside of he is there to sort of tangle with Rene Russo, to work with her, to help her, and to be a reflection of that character. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about supporting characters, you can listen to the episode that I did about Behind the Candelabra, the Liberace movie, where I talk a little bit about uh, different types of supporting characters and how they can function. Moving on, from now on, I will be mentioning what I'm watching on Twitter. So you can follow me at Script. And if you see that I'm going to watch a movie, you can watch the movie also. You can tweet at me. You can send me an email at thestarterscreenplay at gmail.com. And that way, I might be able to answer some questions and talk about some new topics on the podcast. And in addition to watching Thomas Crown Affair this week, I watched Interior Leather Bar. And this is the one-hour short film. That James Franco wrote, produced, directed, financed, and it was purportedly about the 40 minutes deleted from the 1980 William Friedkin film Cruising. Now, Cruising is a fascinating film because it's from William Friedkin, who owned the 70s. This guy did The Exorcist, he did The French Connection, and after a huge bomb, Uh, called Sorcerer that he did. He moved on to Cruising. It's a film about a serial killer in New York City hunting down gay men, and Al Pacino plays the cop who goes undercover in the gay S&M leather scene in order to find this killer. And of course, the question becomes, is this something, is, is this participation in this world, is this character that he's playing bleeding into his reality? And is he possibly closeted himself? And I will say this because it's not really a spoiler. In fact, if you were to go out and watch this movie, you'd probably just get pissed off by the ending because you'd be like, what the fuck did I just see? The end of the movie is completely ambiguous. You don't know if he's really gay. You don't know if he's actually the killer or not. The film actually isn't even interested in those things. I won't get too much more into the William Friedkin headspace, but it's an interesting film, and 40 minutes were deleted from it, which were basically hardcore sex that was shot when they took actual cameras into these leather bars. And the MPA, of course, would not give it an R rating with this footage. The footage ended up getting destroyed, and James Franco created a film that purports to try to recreate this footage, but of course, that's not what this film is about, and in fact, there's only about two minutes or three minutes of this one-hour film that are actually recreating scenes from Cruising. It's it's a meta movie. It's James Franco meeting with a co-director and them putting together the production and James Franco casting his friend who's straight and really uncomfortable with the idea about playing this Al Pacino character and wondering what his friend James is doing by trying to capture hardcore gay sex on film as a straight actor who's doing a Disney movie and they're talking about all this stuff. And that to me was the most fascinating part of it because I think that, you know, 15 years ago, if a, an actor was in a $200 million film, which they didn't even make $200 million films 15 years ago, but if an actor was in a tentpole movie they wouldn't be going out and shooting hardcore sex in a short film using the money they just earned from that that other film. Like, And the studio would have some control over that. The studio would come down on them or at least try to sit them down and say, please don't do this. Like, this could, like, do that next year. <laughs> like, don't interfere with our movie. Don't try to create a scandal. And I think that one of the most interesting things that's sort of external from this text is that it didn't become an issue. There was nothing that impacted Oz the Great and Powerful having to do with the creation of this film that he was working on around the same time. Nor did Disney seem to mind. Everybody just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, well, that's him. He does these crazy things and, you know, so be it. And I think that that's a really interesting statement on how much freedom actors have today in terms of doing whatever they want. So it's it's an incredibly interesting meta movie. It's, it turns out to be an incredibly interesting meta movie. It's a purported documentary about the making of this remaking of a film. And, of course, it's probably all staged to some extent. Uh, I, I would like to say that, that if you go and watch this, please realize that they know what they're doing. And, in fact, William Friedkin, I just saw a clip where he talked about the fact that they were already... Shooting the short when James Franco called him and said, "Hey, what was in those forty minutes uh, that were cut out of the film?" So again, the it's funny that every article you'll read about this movie talks about it's about the forty minutes that was deleted from Cruising, and of course, that's absolutely not the case. There's very little in there. There's a couple of hardcore shots in there, but it's not gratuitous, and it's over very quickly. So you can watch that on Netflix streaming. Moving on to the box office. It was a really rough weekend for studio movies in general because Transcendence starring Johnny Depp died a horrible death. The movie did 11 million dollars. It cost over 100 million. And you know the interesting thing is that Johnny Depp outside of the Pirate of the Caribbean movies hadn't hasn't done a heck of a lot of movies and the one that he did do Alice in Wonderland went on to make a billion dollars. Now I know for a fact that the way that Disney now sees that billion dollar success of Alice in Wonderland is mainly because it just happened to be the first big 3D movie that came after Avatar. And there was this incredible appetite for what was next. And of course, the interest in 3D movies has very quickly died out. But at the time, Johnny Depp got to absorb some of that reflected sunshine from that billion-dollar gross on top of the Pirates franchise, and it has allowed other studios to go make very expensive films with him. Now, the problem with Transcendence is not that it stars Johnny Depp. We all know that Johnny Depp's incredibly talented, and he works in most of the roles that he does. He has really interesting taste. He's one of the great performers out there. But the, the interesting thing is that it casts him, in terms of the trailers at least, casts him as the villain. And that's not something that audiences want to pay to see. Audiences pay because we want to be these characters. We want them to be the heroes. And it's not that a big actor can't play a villainous role. It's just that audiences don't have an incredible appetite for that. So you have to go all the way back to Batman to find a film where – the bigger actor played the villain. In this case, it was Jack Nicholson as the Joker. But there was something so iconic about Nicholson as the Joker that made it work and that was able to... Uh, provide audiences with something that they wanted to see. And of course, in trailers, that came across. People wanted to go see the movie because it seemed like such a wild performance. But I would go even further to suggest that the real star of Batman was Batman, the title Batman, the property Batman. So let me read you what Script Shadow had to say about Transcendence. And I want to point out to you that the Script Shadow website is a great, great resource for screenwriters. I don't necessarily recommend their consulting, but I do think that if you're a screenwriter and you want to find out about the scripts that are selling in Hollywood, it's a really good resource. There's a community of writers who trade scripts with each other. You'll find links to find scripts through the website. And at the same time, he writes these articles that are sometimes a little misleading. Sometimes I I have some issues with some of his analyses and sometimes he is dead on. So in this case, I I had a real issue with this, and of course I'll share it with you. This is what he wrote. Quote, Transcendence just made every single one of your jobs as writers a thousand times harder. You may not know this, but every time a a spec script turned film bombs at the box office, it hurts you. Because studios log that away and say, yet another reason not to make spec scripts, which makes it harder for you, my dear writer friend, to sell a screenplay. I mean, first draft day bombs, and now this. We're not exactly making a strong counter case here. All right. He makes everything so fucking personal. <laughs> it's so, you know, your writing career is now imperiled because of what Transcendence did. And that's not the reality. The reality is that Transcendence was a spec script, sure. And it was immediately inside of the agency that represented it. Recognized as one of the most major spec scripts that they would get to deal with all year long. And what they did was they sent it to their number one client, Chris Nolan, who said, Yeah, I want to produce this. No, I don't want to direct it, but I want to handpick the director and work with my cinematographer who's now going to direct this and so forth. And they put together a package based on that. So, the number one person, the only person they ever went to in terms of a producer who could sell whatever he wanted to a studio said yes. So as screenwriters, there's so many other possibilities in terms of people you can go to and in terms of creating a bidding war and in terms of using all of the various possibilities that there are to sell a screenplay, this one was one-stop shopping. It got sent to one person, and he said yes. And believe me, if Chris Nolan hadn't said yes, the number two person would have said, fuck yeah, who do I have to blow to get the rights to take this to the studio? Because this script was just that good. I I think that it does a disservice to, to make writers feel that they're somehow connected to all of this stuff. And that studios, I don't think that he has any real experience. Carson says that he was a reader for agencies and so forth. I don't think he has any real studio or production company experience. Um, So I can see maybe... From his perspective, this is how it works, but studios are always looking to buy screenplays. They used to buy three screenplays a week, and now sometimes they only buy one, or they might only buy one every two weeks. They're always buying scripts. They're always looking for new properties. The real problem here is that Johnny Depp was playing the villain. And that audiences saw that in the trailers and said, we're not interested. We don't, who the fuck is the star of this film? It's Rebecca Hall. I think Rebecca Hall's an amazing actress. If you've ever seen Please Give, uh, she was great in what was that? Vicky uh, Cristina Barcelona. She's not a leading lady when it comes to selling tickets. She is one of the great actresses out there. But um, I, I think that that's something to keep in mind that, when you're writing your own script, just remember that you don't want the villain to be the star of your film or the, the center of your film necessarily. And in this case, it made a little too much sense for everybody involved. And it was a get to get Johnny Depp. And it also didn't require him to be there that much. I think that's the other thing. That it was just too good for everybody. It was like, yeah, we'll get Johnny Depp and we only need him for nine shooting days. Um, And then he's gone. I mean, it's essentially, he's animated in this film. Some critics said that he Skyped in his performance. What was successful at the box office was Heaven is for Real, which made about $30 million for the weekend. And God's Not Dead, which I talked about last week, actually pulled even with Noah, even though it's been out a week longer than Noah. I said last week that God's Not Dead would do about half of what Noah did. It's actually going to do more than half, at least domestically. Now, of course, internationally, Noah is doing really well. So the fact that it's going to top out at about 108 million dollars domestic is not that much of a problem. But God's not dead is going to finish up closer to 55 to 60 million, and for a film that probably did not cost one million dollars, that's a Huge accomplishment. So, if you have a script called Jesus Rocks or God, I Love God or whatever, whatever sort of uh, religious script that you're interested in writing, this would be the time to write it. This would be the time to get into it, and don't be afraid to take that faith-based approach inside of other genres and to do something, to look at some of these films and see, well, what is it that this audience wants? I broke it down last week when I talked about God's not dead, where it took some very specific cultural Beliefs of a part of our population and incorporated those into the storyline in a way that turned out to be incredibly effective. So, good for them. So, I'm really pissed off about what happened with the Color of Night How Did This Get Made episode. You probably know that How Did This Get Made is my favorite movie podcast, and it is Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and Jason Manzukis, and often a guest talking about a film that they've watched, and they only do one film per month now. Every two weeks, you'll get an episode that'll say, hey, next next episode we're going to do this, so you can go out and watch it. And they finally did Color of Night. So I have a long history with Color of Night. I saw the film in the theaters, and... Even though I'm going to criticize the cut that they put in theaters, the thing that it did for me was it opened my eyes to the possibilities of cinema. The rug has never been pulled out for me again like it was watching this movie. If you've seen the film and remember it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the twist ending that just floored me. I actually gasped out loud because I couldn't believe that I didn't see it coming. And I was so wrapped up in the film that I, again, something that obvious and so central to what was happening on screen had just never gotten by me like that before and certainly hasn't ever again, because it kept me on my toes in a way that I'm pretty sure had I watched The Sixth Sense, I would have figured it out just Based on my experience with Color of Night and based on me knowing how to look for things and being on my toes in a way that I never was before. So it's an interesting film for me because I went on to study the director's entire filmography as part of an independent study project in college. I spent about 20 hours interviewing the director about all of his movies, but spent quite a bit of time with Color of Night because it had this really labored production history. And the long and short of it is that he made this strange erotic thriller with a lot of comedy in it. The director is known for doing mashups of genre where he basically just throws everything in the pot and cooks it together. And the producer saw the film and said, we don't know what the fuck this is. This is not Basic Instinct 2. And that was kind of what they were expecting. What ended up happening was the producers cut their own version of it. The director said, okay, if your version tests better than my version, you can use it. Even though I have final cut on the movie, fine. You guys can use it if you can do better than I can. And they couldn't, so then they fired the director. The director had a heart attack, and they all came together and said, okay, we're friends here. Let's figure this out. And what they decided was the producer's cut would go to American theaters. The director's cut would go to international theaters, VHS, cable And anything else that would ever follow. So if you're somebody who's seen Color of Night since the day that it left theaters in the United States in 1994, you have seen the director's cut. Unless you happen to watch it on iTunes in the last couple of weeks. I don't know what happened before. I don't know what version they had up, but somehow, in violation of this director's contract, they are now showing, or you can download, the producer's cut. And you can only download the producer's cut. Now, how did this happen? My guess is that the film has gone through a lot of different distributors. If you look at films like Total Recall, Basic Instinct, they're all from the same distributor that went under, they went bankrupt, so therefore every couple of years a new company owns the rights to these films, and then they put out a new version of the DVD and so forth. So in this case, I think it was just a fuck-up by whatever distributor happens to be owning the movie in 2013 or 14. But everybody on the panel watched this producer's cut, and they hated it. So they're talking about a movie that doesn't really exist, that was completely abandoned and discarded and hated by critics. Now, the funny thing is that a lot of the things that they had problems with when they were shitting all over this film were also present in the director's cut, where you can't really say, well, yeah, you know, the director's cut did it differently. But so much of this episode was centered around trying to figure out what was happening. And that's the problem with the producer's cut. It's that it cuts away all of the plot. The director's cut is actually 18 minutes longer. And when you have a murder mystery with seven suspects running around, maybe it's eight, actually... I'm not going to count up right now. Seven or eight suspects. Eighteen minutes makes a hell of a big difference. So while the director's cut is not perfect, while I see now a lot of the issues that are inherent in this film, and by the way, that two hour and twenty minute cut, some people really don't like that either, because it's way too long for a movie like that. The problem was the director only had two weeks to put together his cut and he did not have time to take things out. He basically just had to put everything back in. That's all he had time for, and you end up with a film that's about ten minutes longer than even he you probably intended it to be. And of course, that can get boring for some people. You know, there's actually a version of The Wolf of Wall Street on the DVD that runs an entire hour longer. It's a cut of the movie that's an hour longer without many additional scenes. It's just the cuts are fewer and far between. The There's a lot more dialogue. The scenes are fattier essentially. And that's sort of where this, you know, two hour and 20 minute version is where it really needed to be cut down a little bit and wasn't. But again, it was just a huge disappointment to me. And I was hoping to hear what some people that I really respect, you know, uh, Jason Manzukas and June Diane Raphael, both write screenplays. So I was interested to hear their take on this movie. And unfortunately, they reviewed the wrong movie. And it was very, and, and it's so funny because as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, what were they watching? How could they be having this much trouble with the movie? And then I went on iTunes and saw how it happened. So I'm going to suggest if you haven't seen the film, again, now I'm realizing that there are a lot of issues with it that I wasn't even really in touch with before. So I do appreciate listening to the podcast for that reason. But I still recommend it, especially if you're interested in filmmaking, lower budget filmmaking. The framing and composition of shots in this film is really spectacular. And the director pioneered the rack focus, which is a formal technique where you focus on one thing and then you pull focus to focus on something else inside of the same shot. You're changing perspective without an edit. And that's something that's integral to all film and television today all right that's all for this week can check out my book the starter screenplay at amazon you can download it for your kindle you can buy it in print or hey download it buy it and then delete it and buy it again i would love that you can also hire me to read your screenplay go to officialscreenwriting.com where you can hire me to read your script you can hire me for a concept consultation 99 bucks one hour we talk about five pages of whatever the heck you want to talk about i'm adam levenberg thanks for listening